freedom in Christ is submission to his rule and his reign, and that this surrendering is a completion of the law. It is a great joy to be with you, WSBC, once again. And if I can give you encouragement uh, as you receive the joys in your life, as you work through some struggles and some trials, continue on and continue with the good work that God has started in you and among this fellowship. Well, if you open up your laptop, not now, or you look on your phone and you go to a news uh, source, you see a lot of discouraging things. Fragile nations, economic stress, political divisions, authoritarianism, ultranationalism, neo-fascism, intense civil unrest, uh, recently, in places like uh, Myanmar, in uh, Kazakhstan, in Sudan, Budapest, uh, the United States, where I'm from, uh, we just commemorated a, an assault on our capital, which was symptomatic, I would argue, of the great divide uh, in, in America. This is sort of the state of the world, and you may think to yourself, it seems like stable governance is somewhat lost. Maybe not here in China, <laughs> but certainly you know, around the world. And so how are we to live as Christians? You know, that question is certainly elevated during these times. And the answer of what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live as Christians, comes to us in Romans chapter 13. So let me read... Romans chapter 13, and then give a little introduction, main points, and then uh, summary points. So Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to do good to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. 
Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to be, to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So some of you should remember the last time I was here and the, and the time before that, we've been going through a series in Romans. Last time we examined Romans chapter 12, which entered that phase of the gospel life of gratitude. The gospel shows us how we are guilty before God. The gospel also offers the grace given to us uh, by God in and through Jesus Christ, and because of that, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, we've now lived lives of thankfulness. So we reflected last time on living selfless, sacrificial lives motivated by love. And the focus was for us, those within the body of Christ, a community nurtured by giving ourselves to one another. And that theme will continue today. What's interesting is that the opening of Romans chapter 13 is situated, I would argue, is situated between the end of Romans 12 and the end of Romans 13, both of which deal with living lives of love, which means this discussion about submitting to authorities is encased, if you will, in the theme of living lives of love. Right? So, but we do want to add to our point, and I'll do that in a second, because it may seem odd that Paul brings up, why are you talking about the Romans? Right? Why are you talking about the, the governing authorities? It seems sort of out of the blue. Well, think about it this way. The book of Romans is about freedom in Christ. Now, you could take that freedom in a couple different ways. Paul had to clarify that this freedom did not mean that you had the, the liberty to do whatever you want. He says that in particularly beginning in chapter 6. Nor does this freedom mean that there is an absence of structure, right? So freedom to do or freedom from something. And I think Paul is worried when he's in his discourse in chapter 12, I think he's worried that some Christians will say, well, well goodness gracious, then there's no justice, possibly, right? We can't take revenge, right? Wrongs are going to come to us. So what's the, what's the point? What's the use, right? So the idea is that there is justice and authority and freedom on the minds of the uh, Christians uh, in, in Rome, right? That feeling can arise that we're kind of like, well, the Bible does talk about 
Christians as sojourners and exiles. We read in Jeremiah 29 earlier, here's a captive a people not quite accepted. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, Jeremiah 29 uh, a little bit uh, later. But sometimes we could feel like aliens or sojourners, perhaps even refugees in, in this world. Uh, and one great German philosopher, her name was Hannah Arendt, did a lot of reflection on the, on the philosophy or the nature of what it means to be a refugee. And a refugee is someone who doesn't really get the right to any rights, as she says. Right? And, and that also speaks to our day to day. There's, there's a refugee crisis, crises uh, around, around the world. So what do we do? How do we act when faced when we consider ourselves sort of outside uh, of the law. Well, Paul says to act lawfully. Act in a lawful manner. Paul shows us that freedom in Christ is submission to his sovereignty, his reign, and his rule, which is manifested in both heavenly and earthly spheres, even when all signs of governance is gone. There is the sovereignty of God, the authority of God. And furthermore, this surrendering to the sovereignty of God is the completion of the law. So the law isn't gone. The structure of the world isn't gone. It's actually complete in our submission to God. So this is the main point that I want to emphasize today, that freedom in Christ is submission to his rule and his reign, and that this surrendering is a completion of the law. And, and this is the reason, I would say, this is the reason why Paul brings up the Roman government. Christians and Jews had kind of an uneasy relationship in Rome. Maybe, yeah, I guess uneasy would be a good way to say it. Now, the Jews held a status of what was known as permanent association. In other words, their tradition, uh, their practices were tolerated. There were cases when the Jews were treated harshly, as in the case of Claudius, who expelled the Jewish community from Rome. And let's not forget Paul's speaking to people in Rome, Christians in Rome. We see this in Acts 18. He talks to some of the exiles from Rome who were kicked out. In some cases, the Roman leaders didn't much care. Now, the situation was somewhat similar in regard to the Christian community. But again, you know, in some cases, the, the Romans cared. In other cases, they didn't really care. Jews in Corinth, for instance, accused Paul before the proconsul in Achaia. This is also in Acts uh, chapter 18. And he's accused of propagating an illegal religion. So they're stirring up problems. But Gallio, this uh, prong consul of Achaia, uh, didn't really pay much attention to it. He thought, ah, this is, a, this is a Jewish internal dispute. But in other cases, this is kind of a, Christianity is kind of a new religion. And you need to remember that the leader of this new religion, uh, Jesus Christ, was kind of a, in the minds of some, kind of a threat to imperial Rome. The irony of Jesus hanging on a cross, saying he was the king, 
the king of the Jews, might have been a threat in the mind of some in the empire. And just generally speaking, Rome, I suspect like all empires, want to maintain a very close eye on their citizens, their subjects, their inhabitants, whatever they're called at the time. And so all the more reason for Christians to carefully live, okay? to walk carefully, to live humble, loving, and as Romans 12 says, sober lives. So this is why Christians are encouraged to submit to sovereign, to God's sovereignty, and therefore complete a God's law. So let's break up this main point into three sort of different uh, iterations related to a divine and earthly authority. Point number one, submission to earthly authority is an act of obedience to God. What do we do in the world that we live in? We obey God. So verse 1 of Romans 13, let every person be subject to governing authorities. This is powerful governing authorities. In fact, the word authority in the Greek can be associated with angelic power. Of course, we know that this is human power, so mixing the human power with the angelic power gives you the sense that Rome's pretty powerful. That's the one thing you want to uh, uh, keep in mind. And later in the, in the chapter, it says, if for this reason uh, they wield the sword to punish wickedness, to protect the innocent. They have a right to command and receive obedience. They exact taxes for the empire. Of course, what comes up in our minds is, and again, this is a question that's very big in my country, on what grounds, on what grounds can the Roman Empire do this? This is to ask, in political theory, this is to ask the question of legitimacy. How can a government, how can an authority ask me to do this? Well, thankfully, <laughs> Paul is not here articulating a theory of government or of politics. Certainly not something I want to uh, get into. Though, of course, much is regarded. We're not dealing with the source of government, right? Whether authority comes from the divine right, divine right of kings, a mandate from heaven, uh, the will of the people. Right? We're not dealing with that. Nor are we dealing with specific forms of government, monarchy, a republic, or, or a democracy. Now, those are fine to talk about. Those are issues you can get into. But here, we're not dealing with, with those. With the exception, with an overall exception, that, verse 2, there is no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. The authorities have been instituted by God. Therefore, he who resists this providential beginning authority of God resists what God has appointed. Now, as we'll, you know, we get through this, we, we don't have to say that we, we can submit to the government without actually giving assent to, let's say, the philosophy of the government, you know, we may not like certain things that are going on with the government and what the government requires of us, but we can nonetheless still submit, even though we perhaps disagree, even as we challenge it. So we, we're, we're reminded here that 
God is the ultimate authority. The earth, as Scripture says, the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That is a theme throughout, particularly the Old Testament. The battle belongs to the Lord. Everything belongs to the Lord. So that's our, sort of, that's our starting point. Those who exercise earthly authority that God has put in place do so kind of by way of delegation from Him. And therefore, we disobey God when we refuse to submit to governing authority and by extension laws that don't force directly the breaking of God's law, which we'll get to in just a moment. And this is why in verse 4 we have magistrate, the governing authorities, do not bear the sword in vain. The sword was a symbol in um, the Roman Empire of the imperium, and the imperium was a a judge-bearing weapon. Also, verse 4, the servant of God to execute his wrath on the wrongdoer. The state is charged with a function which has been explicitly forbidden to Christians. Later on in verse 6, it says the authorities are ministers of God. So those you've got two words, servant of God and minister of God. Now, the servant of God is where we get the word deacon, diakonos. But the latter word, minister, shouldn't be confused with diakonos. It's not diakonos. It's not servant in that sense. It's, the Greek word is litergos. Litergos. Now think about that word. Repeat that word in your mind a little. Litergos, litergot, liter, liter. What does it sound like? Anybody? What? What? Liturgy, right? It sounds like, and that's, that's where we get the word uh, liturgy. Okay, so this minister is a person who executes liturgy, and liturgy is associated with religious service. Now, I think this means that the state as a minister is engaged in high service, very important service uh, to, the, to the community. Verse 6 also says, for the same reason you also pay taxes. I will talk about verse 5, just stick with me for a second. Uh, Verse 6, it says, for this reason you pay taxes. Translators render this as a statement, not a command, although the language can be a bit confusing. And one translator says it, sort of rewrites it this way. This is your justification for paying taxes to pagan rulers because they are carrying out God's service. That's why you pay taxes. Another way to think about it is paying your taxes suggests a tacit acknowledgement of God's orders through the state. And then it says, pay all of them their dues. And and of course, this is an echo of Jesus' direction, render or give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's in Mark uh, chapter 12. But we also have to keep in mind that in Romans chapter 13, especially towards the end, the duty of obedience, think about this, to secular authorities is a temporary one, lasting only for a present period of night, it says in verse 12. In the day which is at hand, a new order of government will be introduced when the saints will judge the world. Peter talked about this last week. So you're being obedient, you're submitting to the government, but this government is temporary. Just 
I think Paul says this as a kind of, you know, ease your mind a little bit. This is only temporary. We'll get more into that in a second. Point number two, submit to authority for the sake of conscience. Submit to authority for the sake of conscience. Well, another sensitive issue that we have to bring up and it is brought up in other portions, portions of Scripture, so I feel justified in bringing it up here, um, relates to the times in which earthly authorities violate God's law. I don't want to get into every, every instance, every argument as to, you know, if the government tells us to do something, how that's sort of construed or misconstrued, as, oh, it's a violation of God's law, and therefore we can dis disobey it. Uh, that is a minefield I want to uh, avoid. I will just say that, look, if the magistrate directly tells you to violate God's command, directly tells you uh, to sin, or forbids you to do what you are called to do in terms of the spread of the gospel, then I think there's, there's a time for disobeying. But, but keep this in mind. I'd make the case that breaking a law, directly violating command of God, does not negate your submission to authority. It doesn't contradict your submission to authority. Because, again, the ultimate authority, go back to point number one, ultimate authority comes from God. And you're still obeying God. Now it says in verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Some theologians have rendered this as magistrates are no terror to an honest man or woman. What can they do to you? Though an honest person may face troubles and trials, they are not, nothing is ultimately taken away from them. When the decrees of the civil magistrate conflict with the commandments of God, then the Christians say, look, in, in, as it says in Acts 5, 29, we must obey God. God rather than men. So when Caesar claims divine honors, Christians must answer no. One writer, Oscar Coleman, says the obedience which the Christian man owes to the state is never absolute, but at the most partial and contingent. It follows that the Christian lives always in a tension between two competing claims, two competing worlds or spheres that in certain circumstances, disobedience to the command of the state may be not only a right, but also a responsibility. This has been classical doctrine ever since the apostles declared that they ought to obey God rather than man, he says, Coleman says. Now this got me thinking about uh, a tradition in America, uh, and this is unique to America, the tradition of civil disobedience. And in the tradition of civil disobedience, if you think of people like uh, Martin Luther King uh, Jr., part of civil disobedience is breaking an unjust law, but not just breaking the unjust law and like running away and hiding, but the tradition of civil disobedience is, is breaking the law and facing the consequences for breaking that law, which takes kind of double courage to be able to break the law and to say, I'm going to face the consequences for breaking that law. 
for Martin Luther King in the tradition of civil disobedience in, in America, what they were doing, they were communicating something. They were saying that my breaking an unjust law and facing the consequences for it communicates the fact that I hold to a higher standard of law. I have greater respect for law than even the civil magistrate does. And there's one last qualifier before we uh, move on. Do we violate Paul's directives in Romans chapter 13 when criticizing, criticizing a government? Now, this always depends on your context. There are some, from where I'm from in, in America, it says, oh, submit to the government, don't question, don't speak out uh, against uh, your government. Well, Americans have a constitutional right. It's, it's, it's okay, according to the laws of America, to say, I don't like what you're doing. <laughs> but put that in the context of living sacrificial lives of love, which I think would put aside things like violence. It sort of depends on, on your context in this regard. But let's, let's think about, for, for a moment, uh, verse 5. For the sake of conscience, for the sake of conscience. 1 Peter 3.13 says, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is right? And the words immediately follow in 1 Peter uh, 3.14. It says, But even if you do suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. You know, we, do, we want to do what's right, not for the purpose of gaining something, but as an end in itself. We might be punished when we haven't violated any laws. We might be punished even for doing righteous deeds. But the state that punishes us for good deeds can never take anything of ultimate value away from us. God is a shield, the book of Proverbs says, for those who walk in integrity and in righteousness. Right? And you know deep down that you have acted in an appropriate manner, that you've obeyed the law, even if you're prosecuted for righteousness or, or for doing acts that are right. So as it relates to conscience, it feels right, it is fitting what God wants, to do what's right even when there's no reward or when you're persecuted for doing what's right. I'm reminded of a classical early medieval uh, work by the writer Boethius. He uh, wrote a book called The Consolation of Philosophy. Boethius was a Roman senator, uh, a philosopher, a teacher. He served the king of Rome, uh, Theodoric the Great, Theodoric the Great kind of struggled with uh, insecurities. He was a bit of a narcissist. Uh, and he believed that some of his high officials were out to dethrone him. And Boethius was accused of uh, insurrection. Everything was taken away from him. He was removed from his family. All of his riches, all of his wealth, his position, everything was taken away. He was sent to a dungeon, tortured, and later executed in 524 uh, A.D. And Boethius, who is a philosopher, thinks to himself, you know, Lord God, and he is a Christian, says, how can this happen? 
So he writes this Socratic dialogue between himself and, and this is in his imagination, lady philosophy, right? So he's having a conversation with, with philosophy, how this could happen. In the course of their conversation, they talk about things like providence, earthly pursuits to attain goodness and happiness. They discuss the problem of evil. Uh, and so Boethius asks Lady Philosophy, she says, how can God let this happen? She says, look, think of your conscience. What have you done wrong? I haven't done anything wrong. You have good, you have truth, you have justice in the eyes of God. It's the evil person that is in greater pain and greater sorrow than you because the person who has committed great evil Lady Philosophy says, is not even really a human. They've come to the state of being an animal, and for that reason, they can never pursue happiness. And so what do they do? They pursue earthly happiness, honor, power, wealth. And we still, people still pursue these, these things, honor, power, and wealth. And we think these things uh, gain us happiness, and they don't. So Boethius, even though you're in a dungeon, you're in a better state because of your conscience. And then, of course, the end of the, uh, the, the end of the dialogue is also keep in mind, Boethius, that God is a God of providence, and everything works out for his honor and his glory and your enjoyment. So be patient, right? The night is almost over, as Romans 13 says, and Lady Philosophy encourages Boethius in this, in this sense. Point number three. Submit to authority as the fulfillment of the law. So it says, the passage says towards the end, uh, beginning verse 8, 8 through 10, Owe no one anything. He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Now I was drawn to this word fulfill. What does this word mean, fulfill, uh, of, the, of the law? Well, it means that the law of love is final. The law of love is complete. There's no contractual obligation on receiving this, this law. Owe no one anything. Love is the fulfillment of the law. It's complete. Now, it's fine if you want to reciprocate. We live in a culture of gift uh, reciprocation. That's fine. Give gifts to one another. But we don't want to love to get something in return. Love is the beginning and the end. That's what we mean by fulfillment. That's what we mean by uh, complete. Now, like I said, it's fine to reciprocate, and please give gifts to one another. Remember Romans 12. Go out of your way to show honor to others. Outdo one another in showing honor to another. Another way to think about this is that he who loves has fulfilled the other law. That is, the second commandment of Mark chapter 12. This is what we, we refer to as the second table of the Ten Commandments, right? There's two tables of the Ten Commandments. First table deals with our relationship with God our responsibilities before God. The second table of the law deals with our relationship with one another. In verse 9, he, go, he quotes, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
right? Sort of placing Paul, Paul places himself in the tradition of Jesus, who set these words as the second great commandment alongside, you shall love the Lord your God. On those two commands depend or is the completion, the fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets. Right? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. And Paul mentions the second table of the law, love your neighbor, not the first, because the immediate question concerns a Christian's duty to his neighbor. That's why he focuses on the latter part. Again, this is the theme from Paul in, in chapter 12 and uh, chapter uh, 13. Let me offer a conclusion by way of Paul's conclusion. And this gets us to uh, um, verses 11 through 14, when he says, the hour, I mentioned this earlier, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. So put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's examine ourselves. Let's put aside those earthly desires. And Paul encourages Christians in Rome to be vigilant. First, we demonstrate our obedience to God by putting aside those earthly things, the, the desires of the flesh. But we are also obedient to God as a testimony of His truth, a testimony of His gospel, which then applies to us today. We live our lives as martyrs. Martyrs literally means witnesses. We are witnesses of the good news. Also, living lives of sacrifice and obedience to God's authority should then make us the best citizens. So let's, let's, let's think about this idea of being a foreigner or a sojourner. What does Jeremiah 29 tell God's people who are in captivity? Is go protest. Go take the Babylonian capital. Go to arms. You have a right to do it. What does God say? Settle down. Have a family. Plant a garden. And what? Work for the well-being of Babylon. Work for the peace. Another way to translate it is work for the peace of Babylon. And Paul encourages the people in Rome uh, to do the same thing. Now you may say, well, Jeremiah 29, that's Old Testament. Well, the same language is used in the New Testament. 1 Peter 3, Christians are called sojourners, exiled, scattered through the world, kind of refugees, moving along the world. What do we do? We work with our hands. We submit to God. We submit to one another. Now, why would that make you a better citizen? Because I'm going to put your concerns higher than my own concerns. I'm not going to be speaking about, it's all about me, it's all about my rights. No, it's all about the well-being of the image of God, outside of myself, to others. That's what makes you the better uh, citizen. Be willing to give your life for uh, others. So we're living in an age, a, a very divided age, an age that needs more selfless, not self-centered people. Christians, or Christian, I could say, as you move into this life of gratitude, 
Submit and love God as well as submit and love your neighbor, both inside and outside of the church. This is how we live as agents of reconciliation. Pray with me. Great God in heaven, we thank you so much for your work. We thank you so much for uh, the plan of salvation that is executed in the Messiah, the Savior of the world, uh, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his example, which we've talked about uh, in Romans, Lord. And um, Lord, we ask that you would move us by your Spirit to pursue the truth, uh, that you would, the Holy Spirit, convict us of, of sin, and you would glorify Jesus Christ in our lives, Lord. Help us to be uh, sober in our uh, daily lives. Help us, Lord, to put aside the things of the world, uh, of the flesh, uh, the devil, and to be vigilant. And we anticipate when this old world will pass away, or the current form of this world will pass away, and we anticipate the coming of the new heavens and uh, the new earth, where we will reign and judge with you, Lord. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.